Thanks for tuning in to the Fertility Health Podcast, hosted by renowned fertility specialist Mark P. Trollis, MD. Each episode features first-hand advice and potential treatment news, tips, and strategies listeners can use on their fertility journey. And now, here's your host, Dr. Trollis. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Fertility Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Trollis in Orlando, and we have a terrific show for you today. We've had some great speakers uh, that are coming in to join me, great guests to talk about all the aspects of reproductive medicine. And today we have uh, the president of the Society for Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility, Dr. Bradley Hurst, uh, who, who I've known on and off since 1999. He actually uh, started at the program after I left in, in Charlotte at Carolinas Medical Center. You know, IVF is a is a very exciting area for all of us reproductive endocrinologists. Uh, this year, uh, in, in 2018, at the annual uh, American Society for Reproductive Medicine meeting in Denver, there was a lot of talk about the controversial areas of our specialty, uh, uh, topics that included whether you should transfer on day three versus day five, uh, whether you should transfer fresh versus frozen, and uh, also what about pre-implantation uh, genetic testing for aneuploidy, which are chromosomal abnormalities. And I would tell you that there is still a, a lack of consensus, uh, at least from what I got out of that meeting. And so I wanted to bring on um, uh, Brad Hurst to talk about uh, these areas, particularly when and how to transfer embryos, in other words, fresh versus frozen, and the day three stage, which is what we call the cleavage stage versus day five, which is the blastocyst stage. Just a little background. Brad is the director of assisted reproduction and director of reproductive endocrinology division at Carolinas Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, as I said, he's the president of the Society of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility. He actively participates in many of our society's leadership roles and he has a, a significant and impressive publication history, uh, over 100 peer-reviewed papers and chapters in professional publications that uh, make me very jealous of uh, his prolific writing. And, and, but uh, I, I admire and, and value all of his contributions to our field. So Brad, I want to welcome you to our Fertility Health Podcast. It's a pleasure to join you. Oh, thank you. And uh, I hold a a little special place from where you are. I was in Charlotte for a few years before you came, and, and uh, I know how beautiful it is over there, particularly in the fall. So I'm, I'm jealous of you there, because in Orlando, it's really just hot and humid uh, most of the year. But uh, uh, nice to speak with you. And so, so Brad, talk, talk to us a little bit about you know the history of, of uh, the embryo transfer. I know for many years, and, and, and you, of course, uh, we had done cleavage stage transfers, which was day two initially. And, you know, when we went to day three, we thought that was huge. And, and we were seeing some increasing in pregnancy rates uh, going from just day two to day three. And then, of course, in the 90s, when we went to day five, we could not believe growing an embryo to that stage. So, so take us a little bit of the journey from day two to day three and then day five. Oh, sure. I, and, and I can tell you some personal stories. Um, I was at um, 
dude ranch vacation with with my uh, wife and daughter and met these two beautiful um, late teenage girls. And it turns out that they were the product of IVF from the time that I was uh, doing my fellowship in Baltimore, not my program, but, but at another program. And at the time, they she had cleavage stage embryo transfer, but IVF wasn't very successful. Oh, and the program she was at was one of the more successful programs in the country. And to end up with her twin pregnancy, they put back six embryos at the time. So back in the day, the expectation was that it was unlikely that any one embryo would make a baby. So that was a time when it was when it was normal to put back a number of, of embryos, hoping that one or two would make it, and that five or six or seven or eight wouldn't make it. Uh, over a period of time, um, the culture conditions improved. Our the combination of drugs that we use for IVF improved, and um, we learned a lot about the biology of, of the early embryos. So that it was in the um, mid-1990s in, in my program at the time where um, we still were routinely transferring several embryos. And um, all of a sudden, with after we've made tweaks in the laboratory, we started seeing a crazy number of multiple pregnancies and multiple births. So at that point, we, we, we had to start reducing the number of embryos that we were, we were transferring to, to avoid, avoid complications of multiples. So over a period of time, uh, as culture conditions have improved, we've been able to uh, allow embryos to develop uh, and be healthy for a longer stage of development, pick embryos, pick the best of the group, at least by appearance, and then transfer fewer embryos. So currently the recommendation from uh, Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology is to put, put back no more than one high-quality embryo for a woman under 38 uh, or when we do pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy, no more than one embryo. So we've come a long way. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I, I, I went back, one of my first transfers when I was at Charlotte, Carolina's Medical Center, uh, I we were putting back four embryos in this woman who was in her early 30s, at the cleavage stage, day, day three. And I remember that one of the embryos were retained in the catheter. And I was just sweating and felt that I just ruined everything for this patient. Uh, so uh, we put back the, the catheter one more time, uh, put it back inside the uterus, and it was retained again for the second time. So at this point, I'm drenched in sweat feeling like I have just ruined this patient's uh, chance for IVF. And then uh, uh, we went one more time. Margaret Papadakis, Dr. Papadakis, was the embryologist, a lab director, and she gives me the catheter. We go back in. It's, it's safely put inside the uterus, and it was a Friday afternoon. I was sick the whole weekend, uh, feeling, uh, feeling miserable, and it turns out she ends up with triplets. Uh, so... so Clearly, clearly, uh, underscoring your point of, of day five, the higher implantation potential that day five has uh, gives us a significant advantage now to reduce the risk of multiples by transferring one in, in women 
uh, certainly under 35 and, and probably even under 37 if it's the first time. But let me, let me go right to the crux of this whole argument and really put you on the spot, Brad. Uh, uh, would an embryo that does not develop to day five in culture have resulted in a pregnancy if transferred on day three? And I know it's unanswerable, but how do you answer that question when patients uh, are, are posing that to you? Well, it can. So uh, even though we've gotten to be really good in the laboratory um, and, and conditions have markedly improved in the laboratory, we've, we've been doing IVF successfully since 1978. And we still haven't perfected the uh, um, conditions or completely duplicated the conditions that occur inside the human body. So when we when we do an embryo transfer earlier, uh, the embryo goes into a completely natural environment, and I'm not sure that we can ever do better than that in in a laboratory environment. We can do pretty good, but not better. So there is probably some circumstances, there are some embryos that that just don't do well in a, in a given uh, laboratory setting, and by tweaking that setting or, or changing that setting the embryo potentially could do well. And I think we've all seen circumstances where a couple goes through IVF at one program and the embryos don't develop very well and they go someplace else and they have a completely different result. Uh, it's not necessarily that the other program is that much better, but maybe for their, their specific embryos that they would be better. Uh, no, so there's probably some circumstances where if we if we uh, place um, a cleaving, cleaving embryo into the uterus, that it might make it, whereas uh, it might not if we keep it in the laboratory. Well, I, I agree, and I, I don't think day three embryo transfer by any means is dead. I know that there are programs that are exclusively doing day five, and I just have a difficult time from a psychological standpoint to call a patient to say you don't have any embryos to transfer because we went to day five and they didn't make it. Uh, if we only have maybe one, two embryos on day, on day three, uh, we, we will transfer. And, and I just feel, and you know, for years we were doing cleavage stage embryos. So, uh, so it certainly uh, does work. Uh, day five, higher implantation potential, so we transfer less embryos. So, you know, my contention is one size doesn't fit all. What would you say, Brad, is who are the patients that are going to benefit to a direct day three transfer and don't even consider day five? Well, the ones I think who benefit from day three transfer are those who already have the, the one or two embryos selected that will be transferred. So if, if, if a couple goes through IVF or a woman goes through IVF and she has one nice quality embryo, but nothing else, um, that's somebody who would probably benefit from a, a day three transfer because we're not going to make the embryo better by keeping it in the laboratory. We get more information by keeping it in the lab, but, but we don't make the embryo better by keeping it in the lab. Yeah. Whereas if somebody has a, a bigger group of embryos, um, usually by day two or, or day three, the best embryos all look about the same, so we can't pick out the best of the group. So it helps to let them develop a little bit longer to the blastocyst stage, uh, day five, 
And at that stage, we can usually pick out at least the prettiest of the embryos um, to, to do the transfer. So it's really a matter of selection. And I think when, when we already have the, we know which embryos will be transferred, that it makes sense to, to do the early transfer because we can't, uh, I don't think we can really improve on the environment uh, that occurs inside the body, inside the uterus. Yeah, no, I, I, just to follow up on the, on the way an embryo looks, uh, if we're looking at a blastocyst embryo, which is day five, I, I have shared with patients that I have seen the most perfectly looking embryo on day five not result in a pregnancy, and then the ugly duckling embryo on day five result in a pregnancy. So what are you seeing in the, in the medical literature and in your own experience, Brad, on the, on the correlation between how a blastocyst looks and its implantation potential. I know I have seen some studies that, that the morphologic appearance is certainly uh, gives us some improvement, but is it that dramatic enough to tell a patient that, hey, you know, if we don't have a, a stellar embryo blast transfer, your success rate is lower? Um, there is a, uh, a fair correlation between the appearance of the embryo that's transferred and, and the overall success. So if any of us have a, a high quality, um, beautifully expanding blastocyst embryo to put back versus one that's really an early blastocyst that, that hasn't, hasn't really expanded very well or may not have um, all the components that you hope for an embryo to have, I think everybody would choose the, the, the prettier embryo. Sure. But, sure. But, but 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 the appearance doesn't tell us about the genetic makeup of the embryo, and um, what what we've learned by doing genetic testing is that uh, genetic testing is far more important about predicting failure than uh, than than the, the the development. Yeah, that, and that's what I was going to say is the correlation with with the chromosomal content of the embryo. Uh, is not as high as we would like to be able to identify an embryo just by its look. You can't judge a book by its cover. Um, so, you know, you mentioned about day five, and, and it, it sort of segues into the next phase of fresh versus frozen. You know, for years in, in, in my training and in the, in the first decade or so of my, of my medical practice, a frozen embryo transfer was more like a consolation prize. We were doing slow freezing uh, there was damage, of course, uh, or more damage to the embryo with slow freeze than, than now over this last decade, the, the, the rapid freeze of vitrification, minimal to no damage on the embryo. So the patients that, so now it's really changed dramatically. Frozen embryo is not a consolation prize. It is uh, virtually equally uh, successful as fresh, and in some patients, even more successful than fresh. So who are those patients, Brad? Who's going to do better with a frozen embryo transfer than to and to and just freeze them all and don't do a fresh? Well, there there's some there's some circumstances where frozen embryo transfer is is optimal. Uh, for example, a woman who has a really robust stimulation and has risk for ovarian hyperstimulation is better off freezing her embryos to avoid a prolonged ovarian hyperstimulation uh, complication. And when we do genetic testing of the embryos, um, 
in very few laboratories are able to test and then do immediate transfers within uh, within the next day. So just to preserve the synchrony of the embryo and, and the uterus, we, we biopsy and freeze and wait until we get the, the test results back. So those are those are two of the obvious situations. But um, the, over a period of time, there have been a lot of studies that have looked at advantages and disadvantages of freezing versus not freezing. Uh, currently, most programs that cryopreserve blastocyst embryos have survival rates that are at least 95%. And um, a number of studies have shown that, that when we do fresh embryo transfers, that babies tend to be healthy, but birth weights are a little bit lower than with natural conception. And there's a little bit higher risk of birth defects than with natural conception, and maybe especially when we do ICSI, sperm injections. Most of the studies that have done, uh, that have looked at frozen embryo transfer have shown that uh, birth weights are about the same as with natural conception, or maybe a little bit higher, which is certainly not a bad thing. And that, um, that there doesn't seem to be an increased risk of birth defects in most of the studies that have looked at frozen embryo transfer. So there's, there's a couple of other advantages. And then the, in terms of the overall success rate, when we do frozen embryo transfer, we usually do that with by prescribing estrogen and progesterone. Uh, so the conditions are more natural than when we give all of these high-power fertility drugs and hormone levels go quite a bit off normal levels. Um, doing an embryo transfer when, when estrogen levels are multiple times higher than they normally would be and progesterone levels are um, far different than they normally would be probably isn't an ideal situation. So over time, we're probably more likely to, to gravitate to doing more frozen embryo transfers and, and fewer fresh transfers. So, so just to try to bring some, some sense of uh, consensus to this, uh, it, it seems as though, uh, from, from my read in the literature, that the frozen embryo transfer uh, seems, to, seems to be better than fresh when there are uh, much higher levels of, of estrogen, or estradiol uh, blood levels from the stimulation cycle. And when that, uh, that seems to have a negative effect on the lining of the uterus, which is the endometrium. So... Uh, it, it, it improves in that natural cycle of just giving estradiol and progesterone uh, to patients. So uh, it seems as though that uh, a fresh transfer is still reasonable to do in a patient who's a normal responder, uh, not at risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, um, and uh, is not doing chromosome testing to do the biopsy on day five, is just going to just do a fresh cycle. Or the the poor responder, uh, the patient. So the good or the poor responder uh, could still uh, undergo a fresh embryo transfer. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I agree with that completely. And and yeah. as as we go through the nuances, it increases the complexity. So I think one of the most important things is that that doing fertility treatments and doing IVF shouldn't really be a one size fits all. Um, thing for for our patients. Um, so for somebody who has two or three or four eggs that um, uh, that we recover, they're 
probably best served by doing a fresh embryo transfer. Somebody who has lots of uh, lots of follicles and lots of eggs um, and high risk of, of ovarian hyperstimulation, they're clearly better yeah. by um, by doing fresh embryo transfer. And the patient with the low numbers of embryos, not just having a fresh transfer, is that there is some uh, support to do a cleavage stage transfer in the poor responder. Oh, absolutely. But uh, but but people have to be careful uh, when they look at overall when they look at a program's overall success rates, and, and I can I can use our um, our program as an example. Our fresh embryo transfer rate um, birth rate is lower than our frozen embryo transfer birth rate. But we only freeze high quality embryos, and we're we're willing to transfer an embryo that that's um, that's cleaving or developing, even if it's not. Even if it's not a beautiful embryo, we'll we'll do a transfer rather than than scrap the cycle. So when when you compare the overall pregnancy rates or birth rates with fresh embryo transfer versus frozen embryo transfer, you're really comparing apples and oranges. They're not the same thing. Uh, and I think most programs will do fresh embryo transfers for embryos that that may that they may not freeze. So the process of freezing is is a process of selection and gaming the system in in a way to, to maximize success rates because it, it, it makes no sense to a patient to freeze embryos if they have a, a very low chance of success. Yeah, I, 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 that's a, a hugely important factor and, and a whole other uh, topic for uh, a whole topic for another podcast actually is about understanding the statistics. Uh, from the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology, so I, I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, Brad, we, this this time went extremely rapid, and I can't thank you enough. It was very informative, uh, and I'm sure our audience has gained uh, significant insight uh, into the questions of fresh versus frozen embryo transfer and, and cleavage stage, which is around day three, versus blastocyst stage on day five. So I want to thank you tremendous uh, help for us to educate our patients. Well, thank you for having me on. Wonderful. So, everyone, thanks for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. If there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, please check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. If there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, Check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. If you're not already subscribed to the show, please press the subscribe button on your podcast player so you don't miss a future episode. And if you haven't given us a review or rating on iTunes yet, consider leaving a five-star review to help us reach and educate even more individuals in need. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.